The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was in the wild with the animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You may be seated. And if you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like us to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. Well, we're back to this again. Me fighting with my mask, taking it to the microphone. Good morning. If you're new here, my name is Jared Huffman. I'm also on staff with Restoration Southside, and we're just so delighted that you're here. We're a relatively new church plant, and the Lord's been kind to us even amid the season of chaos in the world. And so uh, if you're looking for a church home, please do consider us. We would love to have you. Really like being like a family and knowing and loving each other and taking care of each other. So do consider that. Uh, we've been studying Mark. This is just our second look at it. Um, and one of the cool things about Mark is is that uh, I said last week it starts at a gallop and never never stops to catch its breath. Like he is so excited about this story that he says over and over again, immediately, immediately, immediately. Like he, he, he wants to get you to the end. And, but even though he's rushing in that sense, there's still very significant um, theological themes that are hidden in here if you know where to look. And uh, he does that even this morning. So, you know, we talked last week about he says in the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's playing with the theme of Genesis in the beginning. And now here, as he addresses water at the beginning, you know, at the beginning of Genesis, the earth was formless and void, and the spirit was hovering over the water. And here we have the spirit descending down into the water. And so there's just really cool themes that I'm going to unpack for you today. But if you would, let's pray. Let's ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Pray with me. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you uh, for these people who'd come, even having to wear masks again. I thank you uh, that you're so kind to our church. It is hard for us to believe that you love us. And we recognize that's mostly entirely about us and not about you. But with the chaos around us and the chaos in our relationships, we acknowledge that most of the time we think you can barely stand us. That you are annoyed. You are coming uh, to the end of your patience with us. And by your spirit and by your word, would you squash those ideas today? Would you in your kindness remind us just how you feel about us? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
In 2011, in the fall, I was cheering for the St. Louis Cardinals. It's the team I've cheered for almost my whole life. I have to cough, but you're not allowed to do that in public anymore. Give me a second. Cheering for the St. Louis Cardinals. And the St. Louis Cardinals grew up cheering for them. 2011, Cormac was just born, our second son. And he was a little baby. And... I'd sent Aaron to bed to go catch up on rest, um, and I was holding Cormac, standing in front of my television and watching the Cardinals fight the Rangers for the World Series. And it was the game six, and game six was special because there was all these changes in lead. Um, the Cardinals were down in the bottom of the ninth by two runs, and they came back. And then the Rangers went up again in the 10th, and the Cardinals came back. And so it's just this back and forth, both innings. And finally, it's the 11th inning. And I'm holding the baby. And David Freeze, this hometown kid, he grew up in St. Louis, not far from where I grew up, and had gotten to come back and play for his Cardinals that he'd grown up cheering for. He comes to the plate, and he hits a walk-off home run in Game 6 of the World Series. And I was going nuts. I am literally holding this baby and jumping up and down. And do you know what I was saying? We won! We won! Even though I had absolutely nothing to do with the victory. Absolutely nothing. We won! The reason that I tell you that story is because it's exactly what's going on here. There is a champion in this story. And today we get to say with him, We won! We won! even though we had absolutely nothing to do with the victory. That's what today is about in Mark. We see that he's going to be anointed by the Spirit. We see that he's going to be affirmed by the Father, and that also he's going to be attacked by the enemy. Anointed by the Spirit, affirmed by the Father, and attacked by the enemy. Sometimes it feels like reading through the Gospels, the baptism of Jesus is sort of a, okay, let's get going here. This is, it's sort of a transitional story. It's not one of the good ones. It's not one of the big ones. Friends, what we learn from this text will blow your mind. So let's first look at his anointing by the Holy Spirit. Glance down with me, please, if you would, in verses 9 and 10. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The reason that Mark starts with a little bit of background on who Jesus is is so that you will get the significance of who Jesus came for. Jesus was not born in a palace. He was not born in a politically advantageous city. Jesus was born from nowhere for nobodies. Listen to this story from John 1. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me, Philip. Like Andrew and Peter was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael. Listen to this and said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. 
And what Nathaniel says back is this, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Do you hear it? He's supposed to be this coming king to change everything. And of all the places to be from, he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Even in Jesus' upbringing and his background, it's communicating a lesson to us. And that lesson is Jesus came not for special people. Jesus came for ordinary people. Jesus came for broken people. Jesus came for those who do not have it all together and are not from the right place and not from the right background. You see that? It's really important that you do because so often, over and over again, what you're going to think in your own life when you finally slow down and roll over and try to fall asleep, you will have it whispered to you over and over again, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm a nobody. Friends, Jesus came for nobodies from nowhere. That's who he is. And I want you to see this too. Why does the Spirit descend? You see it right here in the verse. It says, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. What's the Spirit doing there? And why come like a dove? I mean, it is this cool father-son moment where Jesus is being baptized and the father is speaking kind words of public vindication and affirmation unto Jesus. But why does the Spirit show up and why does he show up like a dove? Again, Mark is playing with Genesis. Do you remember the story of Noah and the ark? God condemns the world and destroys it because it's evil. It's gotten so bad, so gratuitous, so ugly. And he destroys the world but saves a man named Noah so that Noah can repopulate the earth with God lovers. Rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And finally, Noah, to see if he can get off the ark, if his family will be safe, he sends out a dove. The dove flies over the water. Noah knows it's safe to land because when the dove flies over the water and doesn't return, Moses, excuse me, Noah knows that he's safe. It's that he's safe. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He sends the dove and found a place to rest, meaning God's judgment on people had come to an end. Now, do you see that? The dove coming to rest, meaning God's people, God's condemnation, his judgment for his people had come to an end. And then here Jesus is getting baptized and the dove comes down, meaning God's judgment has come to an end. And I tell you that because we walk around as if God's judgment is still on us. We are still being judged and criticized. We are still on the opposite side of God. But when the Spirit comes like a dove and rests, it means God's judgment has come to an end. Friends, if God's judgment has come to an end for you, why are you still judging yourself? 
Why are you still judging others? In the power of the gospel, the dove comes to say, there's peace now. There's peace between God and his people. And I want you to see this. At the baptism, that's what's going on here. He's saying, because of the one here, because of the one who's being baptized, there is peace now between God and his people, which means you don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to condemn yourself anymore. God's not condemning you. God's judgment on people had come to an end in Christ. That's what you're supposed to see. That Jesus is a comes for nobody's from nowhere. And that God's judgment comes to an end on Christ. And what, what we're supposed to get out of that is what is true of Jesus is now going to be true of his people. That's really what Messiah means. The chosen one, the anointed one. And I want you to see this too. It's, I love how Mark plays with his words. Here in Mark 1.10, the heavens are split. Did you hear it? Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. There is one other time in Mark that he uses that word, torn open. It's where the curtain of the temple, 60 feet high and four inches thick, was being torn open apart. Mark 15, 38, right near the end. Mark frames his gospel with the heavens being ripped open and the Spirit coming down, meaning there is no judgment for his people anymore. And the curtain, the one that would keep God and his people separate because messy, sinful, shameful people can't be in the presence of an all powerful, perfect God. And so they had this curtain that was between them. And that way the people would be safe from God's judgment. That's what it was there for. The people and all their sin would be safe from God's judgment. And when Jesus dies and hangs on the cross and says, it is finished, the curtain that kept the people safe from God was ripped from top to bottom because there's no more need to be kept safe from God in Christ. Do you see that? There's no more need. You don't have to be afraid of God's judgment in the dove because the dove has landed on Christ. You don't have to be afraid of God's judgment behind the curtain because the curtain has been ripped open. It's as if Jesus and the Father are telling us, there's no more distance between you and me anymore. Everything that kept us apart is over forever. But why does Jesus have to get baptized? I mean, he's the clean one. Even John the Baptist, we see in other texts, like, are you sure I should be baptizing you? As a pastor, I, I, I have just the tiniest sense of what that must have felt like for him. Of Just, whoa. <laughs> you want me to baptize you, Jesus? I shouldn't even be standing here, Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says it beautifully. Why in the world does Jesus get baptized? What we have here is Jesus' public acknowledgement 
that he had come to stand where sinners stand. What we have here is Jesus' public acknowledgement that he had come to stand where sinners should stand. That's what I want you to see from this text. As Jesus stands there and gets baptized, he is standing in your place. He is standing in your place and in my place too. What's true of Jesus will be true for you. And that's a theme that we're going to talk about again and again. But what's true of you, what's true of Jesus, will be true of you. That means Jesus associates himself with those who are messed up, those that are sinful, those that can't get it together. Michael Floyd, a professional football player, was released by the Cardinals, Arizona Cardinals. He was fired because he got a DUI. The very next morning, he was hired by the Patriots. Of course he was hired by the Patriots. He played for 51 days, got $1.2 million. He didn't play in the Super Bowl that they won and didn't even play in the AFC Championship game. Here's what I, I want you to see there. This criminal... gets moved to a place where he gets all of the benefits, $1.2 million, and an AFC championship ring, and a Super Bowl ring, and he didn't lift a finger. That's what the gospel is. We who are criminals get transferred, and we get put on the right champion's team, and we get all of the benefits, and we didn't lift a finger. That's what's going on here. Jesus goes and associates himself with the lowly and the sinners. And then he will pay our price and we will get his prize. Not only that, the Spirit comes to show us that God's judgment is over. And Jesus getting baptized shows us that Jesus now associates himself with the nobodies from nowhere. We also see Jesus is affirmed by the Father. There's this beautiful scene. Look with me in verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You're my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. It's this sweet father-son moment. The father's looking at his son. You. I'm pleased with you. But follow me here. Tim Keller says it this way. Think about this. If you find someone that you adore, somebody you would do anything for, and you discover that that person feels the same way about you, it's sublime. That's what God has been enjoying for all eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are pouring love and joy and adoration into each other, each one serving the other. They're infinitely seeking one another's glory. So God is infinitely happy. And then Keller says this, what he has enjoyed for all of eternity, he has come to offer you. You see it? That's the audacity of the gospel, is that God loves you in Christ 
to the same degree that he loves his son Jesus. Let me say that again. God loves you in Christ to the same degree that he loves his only son Jesus. And you can look at well-meaning, mature Christians and tell them that, and they will literally go, well, nah. Not, he loves us cool, granted. Not that much. That is the startling nature of the gospel. It's not that Jesus gets demoted down. It's that we get promoted into the life and relationships of the Trinity. So that we are treated now as Jesus was treated then. That means when you hear, with you I'm well pleased, that's the Father grabbing your shoulders and looking square in the eye. And even though you awkwardly look away for a second, he waits for you to look back at him. And the Father says to you, I love you. I'm pleased with you. You're my son. You're my daughter. That's what he's saying. From Genesis 22. Remember, Abraham finally has a son after all these years. And he's supposed to go and sacrifice him on a mountain so that God will know that Abraham loves him. And Abraham actually does it. I love you so much. I'll give you my only son. And God stops him and says, hey, I know you love me. You don't have to give me your own son. And then God himself in Christ does what he does not even require Abraham to do. You want to know how much I love you people? He says, I love you so much I give you my, your son, your only son, with whom you are well pleased. The Father and Spirit and Son are in this gloriously fulfilling, dear relationships, and you get a seat pulled up at their table. That's the startling nature of the gospel, is that you get a place, there's a place for you now. And if you're like me, at any given point, something can make you feel left out. I mean, we literally have a word for it now. FOMO. We hate it. We hate it. And what God is saying to us in Christ is that you will never have FOMO for what's going on in our relationships together. You've got a seat at the table now. Your seat is Jesus' seat. But we don't believe that. We think we're tolerated from another room. We think he likes us and he loves us because he's dutiful, but he doesn't delight in us. When my sons, Connor and Cohen, walk from the nursery to the restroom with one of our nursery workers and back and I see them and they come by and they want to high five every time they come. And so I stop what I'm doing and I look at my two little boys and I want to just high five them and my heart bursts with delight. I am like, I love you so much. I am concerned sometime that I'm going to eat you. That's what God feels for you now. Because you're his son in Christ. You're his daughter 
in Christ. This is the, the true king come. The Lord's anointed one. He's the suffering servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold. Isaiah 42, my chosen one. Listen, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nation. My son in whom I delight. And you took his son's place at the table. That's why I can tell you, I know you think I'm preacher exaggerating. I know there's an element of you in saying, yes, God, wow, he really does love us. He really does love us, but not as much as he loves Jesus. I know you're thinking that. Galatians 2, for the law, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Listen to this. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You died. Your life is now hidden in Christ with God. Listen to this. This is Colossians. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's the gospel. That now because of God's love for you, you are given a seat at the table of the Trinity. You get to hear the words, you are my son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. You get to feel that fatherly delight. I want you to think about that. Dwell on how much God is pleased with you. If I were to ask you that on your way out, if God pleased with you, you would physically react. You would be like, oh, how about God tolerates me? The Bible says God is pleased with you in Christ. You died and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. So when the Father looks at you, and that's a terrifying thought for most of us, that the Father God who sees all and knows all looks at you. What he sees is that you've died and you're now hidden in Christ with God. So he sees his son, his daughter, he sees those twins running across and high-fiving. And his heart explodes with delight when he thinks your name. Because your life is now hidden in Christ with God. Think about the love he has for you. When you hear that devil accusing you and your sin and temptation accusing you, say... God delights in me. I don't know why and I don't, I don't always get it, but God loves me. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. You see that he's got the spirit who confirms his work. That he comes for the nobodies, the left out, the least, the little, the lonely, the lost. You see that he comes as the king, that he's affirmed by his father, and that he invites us into it and gives us a seat at the table. And now you're loved like to the same degree Jesus is. But then you see that he's attacked by the enemy. He's attacked by the enemy. Remember that scene in Braveheart? William Wallace is finally covered in blue, and he's got everybody ready. 
and there's a meeting happening between the two armies, and William Wallace goes, even though he's not, in, not invited to it. And just as he's about to ride out, his generals grab him and go, where are you going? Do you remember what he says? I'm going to pick a fight. That's what's happening right here. This drive out. Did you hear the words? The, speedy, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. The word Mark uses is cast out. It's like the same thing Jesus is going to do with demons. But instead, this time, it's the Holy Spirit casting out Jesus to go pick a fight. All the way back in Genesis 3 where he says, there's good news, Adam and Eve. I know you've messed everything up, but there's going to be one who comes one day and he's going to stomp on the head of the serpent, but the serpent is ultimately going to take him down too and strike his heel. That fight, that long, old, ancient, historic fight has come to bear. And Jesus goes out to the desert. Let's pick a fight for you. For you. The Holy Spirit leads the anointed Messiah King out to front to confront Satan in the wilderness. Listen to this quote by Sinclair Ferguson. If Jesus was to reverse what Adam had done, he needed to enter the world not as Adam had found it, but as Adam had left it. Jesus was to reverse what Adam had done, he needed to enter the world not as Adam had found it, but as Adam had left it. Do you see the animal part that Mark's playing with here? Remember how I told you Mark is playing with Genesis? Do you remember those scenes from early Genesis where we have this vision of Adam walking around with lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and he's like scratching them behind the ears and he's safe from them? He's naming them. He has rule over them. And here it says this about Jesus. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. You see, the safe lions and tigers and bears are long gone. And Jesus is now in a world broken. Animals are wild and dangerous. And this is the temptation that the devil throws at him. Ultimately, the temptation is... Jesus, just avoid the cross. All three of them, just avoid the cross. You can still be famous. You can still be powerful. Just avoid the cross. Why is that so significant? Because, again, playing with the themes of the earliest parts of the Bible, there's a tree of life. Adam and Eve, remember the tree of life? He says, obey me about the tree of life, and you will live. Obey me about the tree of life and you will live. But Adam failed. And now Jesus' promise is not obey me about the tree and live. Jesus' promise is this. Obey me about the tree, the cross, and you'll die. Obey me about the tree and you'll die. And Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to enter being a king any other way but through death. And Jesus goes at it anyway. Straight out to the devil. At some point... 
we all take the temptation of Jesus and we sort of turn it into like a self-help thing so that we can fight our own temptations, our pornography, our lust, our, our gossip, our greed, our sexual temptations, our, our substance temptations. And so we think we can kind of like parse out what Jesus' temptation, how he did it, and if he did it, so can you. That is not what this passage is about. This text gives hope to the ones who cannot fight their temptations. This Jesus is for failures and quitters, ones who give in to temptation, ones who tell themselves all day that they're not going to give in to sin, and then they fail anyway. This Jesus is for ones who dabble with their sin at night. This Jesus is for alcoholics This Jesus is for addicts who can't say no. This Jesus is for those who cheat on their spouses. This Jesus is for those who shout at their children. This Jesus is for those who give in to same-sex desires. This Jesus is for those who gossip. This Jesus is for those who envy each other's house, wife, and vacations. Jesus didn't fight temptation in hopes that you would too. Jesus fought temptation because he knew you'd give in. He knew I'd give in. Jesus came to pick a fight to incite war with the ancient beast because he won't let Satan have you. He loves you that much. He won't let Satan have you. When Martin Luther was asked how he overcame the devil, he replied, when Satan comes knocking on the door of my heart and asks who lives here, the dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out. Now I live here. Friends, that's what we have in the gospel. It should startle you. You should try with all your might to wrap your heart around it, and then you'll forget it and try again the next day. Hebrews says this, we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Mark's account here ends differently than the other ones. In the other Gospels, when Jesus withstands his temptation, the devil leaves. But Mark leaves the devil right in the middle of the text. Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's as if Mark wants to make the point to you that this fight is still on, at least in Jesus' life. Mark is saying, get ready for a ride because it's going to be a bumpy ride because King Jesus has come to pick a fight with Satan for you. I've had two friends leave ministry in the last year. I have to tell you, it fills me with dread. Nothing causes me to feel like loss in the kingdom is when Satan or life circumstances take down a pastor. We're still in the fight. 
and yet it's already been won. When you feel like you are losing and you have lost and you are not growing and you are giving up, you don't have to look at yourself. You stare your eyes at the cross and you remember that in it you have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live. Your life is now hidden in Christ with God and the victory has already been done. It's already been won. You say, I'm a nobody, but Jesus came for nobodies. The Spirit has descended, which means there's no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ. Jesus gets baptized so that he can be unite himself to us, that he can stand in our place. And friends, that's what has happened in the gospel. It's that Jesus gives up his seat at the table and gives it to you. It's not that God now tolerates you or God loves you but doesn't like you. You have been invited in to the heart of the Trinity to be loved and delighted in for the rest of history, the rest of time. Do you know this, Jesus? If you don't, I'm so glad that you're in this room. Please come and talk to me about it. We'll get coffee or drinks or whatever. Please come talk to me about it. God is love. And if you don't know what that means, please come talk to me about it. But for you who are Christians, if we have to admit it, that's not what we believe about Jesus. We do not believe that we're that delighted in, that we're that loved. And can you imagine how insulting that is for God? I send my son. I chase you through history. I stop at nothing. I give you my spirit. I come and fight off the old ancient one. I lay down my life and bleed for you. And the people of God think I'm indifferent about them. He wants you to audaciously bask in the vast, immeasurable grace of God and his love for you. Remind yourself of it. When you look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ, as one commentator said. We'll close here. In our house, Knox and Cormac's room used to have this little kind of, it's honestly kind of like an old school bolt lock on it. And it's just an old door and an old lock. But in other words, you can't pick the lock, you can't take off the doorknob like once it's locked, it is locked inside the wooden door. And one time my daughter Carson was playing around in the boys' room when the boys weren't in there. And this was when she was very little and could not explain things to her. And she had got herself locked. She locked the door and then kind of forgot what she was doing. And she was wailing inside of the boys' room. And like the boys' room has like an inch gap under the door. And I would lay down my head and look for her and she was balled up in the corner of the room crying, why won't anybody come get me? Why won't anyone come get me? And so I walk up to this old wooden door and square my shoulders to it and go, here goes. And I kick and the door splits open, the lock bursts off, and I am in the room. And I stood there like this. 
I thought, I wish Aaron had just seen that. <laughs> you see, there was nothing, nothing that was going to keep me from my daughter. And friends, when you see Jesus come and be baptized in your place, Come and fight the devil and the temptations that you can't fight. Die the death you don't want to die and then vanquish death. What Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are saying to you is there is nothing I wouldn't do for you. Bask in that. Don't let yourself forget it. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you even as Christians, we do it worse because we, we should know better that you do love us. And yet we act as if you're disinterested or distant or apathetic or annoyed. Teach us to bask, to bask in our lovedness. Help it change our very lives. And you love us to the same degree that you love your son, Jesus. Help us believe. It's in Jesus' name that we change our very lives. And you love us to the same degree that you love your son, Jesus. Help us believe. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.